From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Robinhood abandons its UK launch amid criticism of their platform. Klarna reigns in their lockdown lending and Monzo relaunch their Plus product. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 447 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by colleague and co-host, Mr. Ross Gallagher, the Terry Wogan of Fintech himself. How are you, sir? Oh, wow. What an intro. Um, I'm great, sir. It's uh, really glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to this show. Lots of great stories. So many stories and great guests. Making a welcome return is the one and only Anna Herrera, Fintech reporter at Reuters. Anna, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Really good, thank you. Really good. Uh, and excited to get into this. And we've got a debutant this week. Um, we have Alex Marsh, who's Senior Analytics Director at Klarna. Alex, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Simon, how are you? Yeah, yeah. Really feeling good about the show's stories this week because the first story this week is Robinhood. Uh, they have scrapped their UK launch amid mounting scrutiny of their trading platform. So around a quarter of a million Brits are on the wait list, but they were told by email on Tuesday morning that plans to launch have been suspended indefinitely. Robinhood opened its waiting list in the UK in November 2019 and promised to launch here this year. The company globally, or mostly in the US, I believe, has 13 million users and has raised over a billion in funding since founding in 2013 via its most recent funding round. It was also valued at $8.6 billion. In Robinhood's statement, they said, although our global expansion plans are on hold for now, we're committed to democratizing finance for more people around the world. We look forward to the day when we can bring this mission to the UK. Uh, Robinhood retain a small team in the UK with an unspecified number of job losses. Um, the UK website will be shut and details of around 250,000 potential customers contacted through its waiting list will be deleted in line with local privacy laws. Anna, what did you think when you saw this? I was... I wasn't sure what was going on. I don't know. I, I haven't had a chance to speak to them, so I really don't have much insight into what their perspective might be. I just think maybe the most reasonable thing is perhaps they are doing really well, actually, in the U.S. in terms of, of volumes, but they've had all these crashes and some concerns about whether you know they're putting investors at risk. So maybe they're just going to focus on where they're making a lot of money and I, I really don't know if they're having issues with regulators. There's been some, I think it was a senator or a, maybe it was, I think it was a senator. Someone in Congress in the U.S. wrote a letter last week or the week before asking more clarity um, about what was going on and why investors seem to be more at risk. So maybe they just don't want to have any more regulatory headaches at the moment. And they just, they're just focusing on where they're doing actually well. Um, it, it was surprising, right? We haven't seen many reversals of launches or... No, no it, it was quite a surprise. Um, but there are a number of folks now in the US. I mean, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, a lot of the big platforms have launched, quote unquote, free trading following Robinhood. Uh, so there's there's a lot there that could be could be an issue. It's really changed the competitive dynamic. Uh, Alex, what, what did you think when you saw this? Yeah, I mean, I think like from our experiences at Klarna, obviously, we've expanded across uh, a number of markets over the, the last few years. So I'm now in 17 different countries. and. Um, I think one of the, the pieces that that flags to you is that that constant trade-off between that kind of desire to expand and, and reach a, a wider consumer base and to you know capitalize on the, the kind of product that you've built, but also balancing that with making sure that you're getting the product right for that local market and that you've got the kind of the right features for the, the consumer base, but equally, you know, as Anna touched on, you're ticking all the, the boxes in terms of making sure that you're offering that product in a responsible way in line with the, the local regulation. Indeed. I mean, Ross, there are some competitors here in the UK as well. We've got Revolut, Free Trade, Plum, even TransferWise are going to launch a trading app at the moment. The, the ground here is a little bit different. And also, the way Robinhood makes its money or from payment order flow isn't something you can do in the UK. So do you think it, there's a different dynamic that might be at play as well? It's not as simple as we're just going to arrive and immediately have customers, although they had 250,000 on the wait list. Yeah, I think I think Anna's Anna's point's an important one, right? In that, um, you know, sorry, when you mentioned about customer numbers and when we talk about valuations, um, the the picture for for Robinhood is is one of of incredible success. But I think actually, 
it hasn't been a great time recently for Robinhood. And even when you take out all of the um, everything that's changed in the context of COVID-19, and, and, and I accept their line in the email that the world is a different place now, I thought what was really telling was their line that said, as a company, we are refocusing our efforts on strengthening our core business in the US. Now, I think within that subtext, what they're kind of saying is that actually there's work to be done now to, to bolster the brand a little bit off the back of... Um, you know, we talked about um, the, the the sort of government questions that the, the the SEC has commented. I think um, in response to there was the the suicide of a twenty year old uh, University of Nebraska student, um, where you know the Robin Hood UI led him to believe that he had racked up losses of in excess of seven hundred and thirty thousand, where in fact he actually had a, a balance of of sixteen thousand. Um, and of course, a, a number of high-profile uh, crashes as well, where the side has gone down, where um, traders have been trying to capitalize on some some market volatility. So, um, it's a sensible move in in my in my eyes because I, I do think they actually need to sort of consolidate the, the the critical aspects of the core business, and 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 like I said, I think bolster the brand a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting in the US, Anna, there's there's public now that there's um, you know, public.com and Stash and a few others that are sort of popping up that, that are in that competitive landscape that many are very, very excited about that, that sort of come at it from a bit of a different angle. Robinhood, um, some have criticized them for almost creating this like addictive type of behavior around investing. And um, many have even commented that because of its links to payments order flow, that there's a risk that um, some retail investors moving around latest trends are actually moving the market and distorting the market because some retail investors moving actually is then picked up and amplified by several orders of magnitude by the sort of the the buy side and, and the asset managers and the hedge funds and high frequency traders. So is there something going on there as well that's optics, as Ross says? They've never been, the, the payment for order flow thing has been something that, you know, we journalists have talked about for a while and it's never really like, got into them like they 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 say that it's not you know as clear as it's it's described and it's very different i think i think frankly i think the outages are the issues here and and the fact that they've gotten so much attention i think they feel you know if we keep getting all these customers and then we keep crashing you know that that's not that's not great um i i also think that you know with them it's not the first time that they do have a moment like this. You remember when they were going to launch the checking account? Um, and they said they said they had it was insured and they told us all it was insured. And then I don't remember if I think one of the news outlets checked with the regulator and the regulator was um said, oh no, like they never checked with us. It was never insured. So then they had to roll that back. So I think they're kind of the they represent the like Silicon Valley ethos of moving fast and breaking things, which is great on some certain aspects because they really did really dramatically changed the industry, right? They drove down prices and brought prices to zero for, for trading. But, you know, it's also very much tech versus finance. And there's a reason why finance is a bit more cautious. It's because it's people's money, it's people's livelihoods. And, and you know, you can't just have a platform that crashes all the time. Imagine if, if that was happening with a bank or, you know, or, or another major broker, it would be, you know, criticized as much. So I think it makes sense to sort of focus on on where they are. And and frankly, just having come from the US, you know, I think the US is very US centric and it's a massive market. And so I don't think their core customers will care very much that like for their brand, does it, it kind of matters, but does it really matter right now that they're not launching the UK? Probably not, you know? I, I think there's a couple of, of important points that have been made in there. So I think, first of all, the payment for order flow. I think when you actually start to look into that, it's a little bit murky. So each time a, a Robinhood customer trades, Wall Street firms actually buy or sell the shares and determine what price the customer gets. And then they pay Robinhood for the right to do this because they then engage in a form of essentially arbitrage uh, by trying to buy or sell the stock for a profit over what they give the Robinhood customer. Now, what's important is to, I suppose, recognize the fact that this isn't new. You know, E-Trade and Schwab also do this, but where I think it starts to get murky is the fact that Robinhood makes significantly more um, than the likes of E-Trade and Schwab for each stock. And, and when I say significantly more, I mean significantly more. Um, they're not clear on why this is, but it's likely, according to industry experts, that 
the trading firms believe they can get bigger or, or at least score easier profits from um, Robinhood customers. And I think this raises an interesting question around Robinhood's customer base. And, and, and Robinhood have been quite open about the fact that their average customer is young and sort of generally tends to lack investing know-how. So the average age is 31 and half of its customers had never invested before. But one person's dem- sort of uh, ethical risk around bringing people in who are unsophisticated is another person's democratization. And actually, there were a lot of people that were locked out, and this was an opaque area. So, you know, Alex, when you hear Robin Hood talking about democratization, there's a whole movement on YouTube around financial independence, retire early. There's a there's a generation of people now who are thinking about money differently to previous generations. That's that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, not at all. I think the the kind of the trade off that you're trying to achieve there is what responsibility do um, we have as a you know a, a provider of these services to educate the consumer base that we're supporting. So I think you know there's you know there's lots of examples of um, you know fintechs producing you know products which ultimately are solving you know very valid problems for uh, you know their customer base. Um, that said. You know the you know the examples that um, Ross just gave around you know the fact that these aren't experienced um, users of the product. Um, I think it just raises a bar as the expectation that they need to put that support around their offering to make sure that it's used in a responsible and sort of fully understood way. Robinhood have been a master of sort of this content marketing with their Robinhood snacks sort of um, podcasts and everything. Anna, I mean, there's there's a fine line there, isn't there? I. I think that the, their whole point is that it's easy to trade, right? And that it's convenient and that when you trade a stock, there's confetti and like that that's their whole point and that's why they're successful. So I, I mean, I don't know how you can be successful if then you're telling people every three seconds, you know, be careful, you might be losing all your money. Like that, that's, that's what they're good at, you know, making trading easy and making it approachable and making everybody feel like they're a financial genius including some people I, I know very well. So, you know, it, 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 that's, that's what they do. So I guess it's tricky. How do you balance that with, with you know, making sure that people are responsible? Um, I don't know if the two fits, right? Like if you build your product as if it were, you know, making it as easy as using email, then, you know, email is very different than trading, but you want that user experience. How do you balance it out, right? Yeah, it's trying to fight back against the, the day trading activity versus thinking in the customer's long-term interest, Ross. But there's there's something to be said about the market we're in at the moment that has come through a very volatile cycle. And there are a lot of businesses like uh, sort of the big banks are staring down a lot of loan losses at the moment, whereas um, the, you know, and I think Bank of America and JP Morgan and many others have started to put provisions into, you know, sort of future and upcoming loan losses. Robinhood have been doing by all intents and purposes, quite well, as has anybody in the savings and investment space. So there's there's a part of this that's that's a good business, but you know, can they focus on the um, the points that Anna made about the stability and also look at the the sort of the optic side, or can they only do one at once? I don't know. I I think where we're at right now, from an economic and a market perspective, is interesting and probably more interesting for a platform like Robinhood. Um, than many others i think for a long time um the 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 market was was stable enough that you know you you couldn't really lose i guess now we're heading into a a downturn it'll be interesting to see how the how the cycle hits and how how it affects investors and the reason i say that it it, that's more likely to impact robin hood it it goes back to the point um i made earlier about you know 50 percent of their customer base being first-time traders um, and, and surely that inexperience is going to shine through. I mean, it it absolutely has to. Um, and 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 actually, going back, I think to Anna's point as well. I think this is sort of supercharged now um, in that sort of new era of, of of the online trading platforms and like the gamified experiences. And Simon, back to the point that you made earlier as well about addiction. You know, there's neuroscience research that has shown that the same part of the brain that's activated by drugs such as cocaine is also triggered when a person anticipates a financial gain. I think when you don't have those safeguards or those controls in place to stop inexperienced traders chasing losses, et cetera, et cetera, then it, it, it strikes me as a bit of a recipe for disaster. Sorry, I'm being so negative on this one. No, no, but it's dangerously close to gambling. And I think Correct. there's a way to make it not that. 
and there's a way to uh, and there's something in democratizing access to finance and savings there's there are good intents there but um, sometimes using the best behavioral design without the uh, without knowledge of that intent can be can be really dangerous uh, any any final thought, thoughts on this one Anna before we move on to the next story I think one of the things that, that I was thinking now talking about you know how we're entering a crisis if we're not in one already is you know, vents, companies in wealth and, and investing have done well, I think also in part because weirdly people in the U.S. have had more more money now, have done better financially now during the pandemic than before because spending fell, they got government stimulus um, and so so and they got, you know, they, they could um, defer payments on their credit cards. And now everything is going to like hit them at once unless, you know, Congress passes another stimulus bill, which they might. So, you know, what happens when people are, have no more money? Aside from the lending platforms, obviously, will they stop? Will they just sell? Especially because they're inexperienced investors. Will they realize that they should keep their stocks or just sell them when they need the, the disposable cash, right? And, and will that mean that they will have lost money because they're selling when they shouldn't be selling and so forth? It'll be With the interest rates so low as well, you can see why there's there's desire for people to look elsewhere. And a lot of banks have been looking at M&A. We saw Barclays have done a partnership with Scalable Capital. I think we will see more in that space as banks look to their strategy cycle. You know, we're in July now. August, September is is strategy season. How would they get the most out of that? But find that balance that protects their brand is going to be really, really key. Um, kind of being user-centric, but genuinely user-centric in some of this stuff and really thinking about the job that person's going to try and do is, is going to be really, really key. All right, I'm going to move us to the next story. This one comes from the BBC and uh, it says the title is Klarna. We've tightened our lending in lockdown. So um, the the summary of this is buy now, pay later service Klarna has seen a boom in business during Britain's lockdown. Uh, however, as sales increased, but more shoppers faced the financial uncertainty of lockdown, the company did in fact tighten its rules on lending. Uh, they've reviewed their policies around the type of customer they accept, only taking on those they believe uh, will and can repay on time to prevent the increase in defaults at this time, despite rising levels of financial hardships. Klarna's default rate is less than 1%, which is phenomenal uh, if you compare that with the rest of the industry. Um, a recent survey from Klarna found that 67% of shoppers use the service to help manage their finances and spread the cost of more expensive purchases, and almost half use the try before you buy for convenience. Klarna has 8.6 million active users in the UK and a total of 85 million across the world. And uh, well, since we've got Alex with us, um, I'm going to throw it to you for first comment. So yeah, I would say, particularly given like the challenging macroeconomic environment uh, that we face, um, you know, first off, it's worth just saying we want to make sure that you know the customers that we work with, but also the merchants, that you know they're well supported in the environment that we see. I think it's like within our product set that we offer in the UK. It's I think it's important just to provide some context on that. So um, the main two products that we offer um, allow a consumer to either defer payment for thirty days or to um, spread the payment over three months. So they're essentially short-term products. They are, however, interest-free and also fee-free. So one part which um, is you know really important in relation to that is that we we make our money from the merchants, not the customer, and we have absolutely no benefit in a situation where a customer is unable to repay us. So you know our absolute objective is to make sure that we make the right decisions up front to offer our products to customers who we believe can and will repay us. So, you know, if we then look at a situation where you know, there is a, a more challenging you know, macroeconomic environment that's impacting our customer base, um, you know, both employed people, self-employed people, you know, absolutely as a responsible lender, we have a, an, an obligation to make sure that we are you know, making those right decisions up front. Ross, that um, default rate um, being less than 1%, I mean, that compares pretty pretty um, well to to a lot of industry numbers of default rates. I mean, um, what are your thoughts when you saw this? I've, I've, I guess I've got lots of lots of thoughts on this one. So um, to your point, I, I think it's important to put, you know, the figures that are coming out of this in context. So, you know, Alex mentioned that they don't uh, charge any fees at Klarna. You know, you compare that with a, a credit card industry that globally makes, you know, year on year probably up to fifty percent, if not more, of their annual revenues in impunitive fees and charges. You know, I've I've always seen the point of sale lending side and the the the, the work that the likes of Klarna and, and others are doing as as being much more fit for purpose from a, a consumer perspective. I mean, if you're talking about a credit card industry with with that proportion of annual revenues in 
punitive fees and charges, then that's a that's a model that's clearly broken from the the customer perspective. What I really like about this story in particular is COVID has actually provided, a, I'd say, a rather extreme illustration of their more sophisticated um, affordability assessment models in practice. And where I think it also offers an interesting foil is in the the sort of duty of care, I would say, that Kleiner are showing by rejecting people at the point of application rather than letting them get to a point later on because they can't afford the debt of, of, of having to default and not being able to pay. Yeah, Jason always used to talk about um, lenders moving from being uh, sort of bad landlords to good waiters. Um, the the bad landlord being, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the date at which you're charged. I'm gonna hit you with a fee and, and and that sort of thing. The good waiter says, perhaps you've had enough, sir. You know, it's it's there's there's sort of finding that balance. So not that lenders there haven't been good lenders in the past, but it just did seem that the lending industry, especially credit cards, found themselves in that space for quite some time. And um, Anna, how how do you view the this whole space more broadly? Um the the buy now pay later space, I know a firm are very large in the US, for instance, and there's a lot of stuff like this. I'm I'm really curious to see how it will go now. We've seen, you know, big entrants now to Goldman start launching one for travel, which I thought was hilarious because they launched it for travel like the week the lockdown started in the US. And I thought it was not a great moment to launch um launch that. But I'm I'm interested to see, yeah, how it will do now when people might be more in debt. Like where does this kind of debt sit within someone's prepayment? Um, you know, scale of what, what do I want to repay first? Am I going to pay my mortgage first? And then I'm going to pay my credit card. Like, will I just decide that I might not pay this one? Cause it just, they, they look nicer. So I'm, it's fine. And it's like two payments for shoes. Like, you know, how, how, how will that fit in? And I'm curious to see also to hear, maybe Alex can tell us like, what are people more focused on? Has he, and, and I guess it depends on geography. Has he seen people use it to buy more essential, you know, things like, uh, groceries i don't know i know a firm you can use it to pay wherever you want so i wonder if it's still like you know buying that cool pair of shoes that i couldn't really afford but i'm gonna buy anyways now and see uh, and, and pay later yeah so we've seen yeah we've seen some really interesting trends actually like through the lockdown period so um you know to kind of bring that to life to you we have in terms of discretionary spend for consumers a lot of the areas where they would be spending their money has actually you know essentially been you know they've been unable to pursue those interests so be that travel um be that you know uh, their social life and actually you know one of the things which you know feeds into the the default performance we've seen obviously a, a key part to that is making sure that we make the right decisions up front you know another part is that we make it very easy for consumers to repay us that they can do that through the app um, they can do that themselves they get lots of reminders you know we've added you know, extra reminders in there to make it very easy. Um, but, you know, the third part is that we have actually seen like behaviorally, you know, really strong performance in terms of repayments. And I think, you know, a lot of that comes down to the consideration that, you know, the customer base are putting into the purchases. You know, some of the areas where we've seen particular, you know, growth in, we've seen different trends to be fair through the process, but areas where we've seen, you know, investment has been in things like people's well-being. So, um, you know, significant growth in areas like uh, cycling, for example, and, and the purchase, you know, using our products to purchase bicycles, uh, gym equipment and clothing has been really popular. Also, areas like beauty, where people were you know, products that they wanted to invest for their own sort of well-being in terms of being within lockdown. And I think where you see um, people are, you know, have that consideration and, and they're putting that thought into the purchase, what we see is that then flows into their, you know, their propensity and willingness to prioritise the repayment. Um, I guess I think it's um, and you know Alex, it'd be interesting to hear uh, your thoughts on this as well. I think it's probably a fairly common misconception um, that point of sale lenders are providing you know easy, almost flippant access to credit with to, to to people that probably don't need it. I think my point earlier was more around you know making sure that you're accurately assessing affordability so that you are only giving credit to those people that you know can and will repay it. And, you know, the, the default rate of, of, of less than 1% speaks to itself. I guess I'm interested, Alex, um, how do you sort of politely decline people, I guess, at, at the point of application? And how do you make that, you know, a sort of a, a rubbish situation, but a positive customer experience, I guess? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, back to the point about sort of the structure of our product, we absolutely have alignment with our customer base. Like we, you know, we both benefit ultimately, or we only benefit if a 
you know, a customer's in a position where they can repay. So, you know, key is that making the right decisions that you've touched on there, uh, Ross, in terms of, you know, just to give a bit of clarity on the decisioning process before how we kind of the message when it declines. Um, you know, that's an area where, you know, particularly in my role, invest you know heavily day in, day out um, in terms of resource, but also the tools that we use to make sure we're making the right decisions. And there's multiple layers to the, the way we make those decisions. There'll be... Um, There'll be obviously identification requirements, making sure we can identify you as, as the person that they're saying they are. But then we also then go to layers of eligibility. So assessing whether you're eligible and using both obviously information that you've, uh, the consumer's provided as part of the purchase, but also obviously reaching out um, to the credit reference agencies for our pay later products. That would be a soft search for our regulated financing products. That'd be a hard search, but essentially using that information. And then on top of that, particularly for our like larger order values where the financing, the regulated financing product, we're going into more robust uh, affordability assessments that you've touched on as well. So there's multiple layers that we'll use. Now, in terms of then honing those strategies, we're just constantly monitoring data, both in an automated way, but also um, you know through the analysts that we have to look at emerging trends. One of the benefits of having the the, the growing customer base of the of over eight and a half million consumers is that we can also look at um, both for existing customers, your previous payment history, so how you've repaid, um, how you've behaved, uh, but also we can essentially map those insights across to new customers to look at certain demographics by age, by geography, to see again the likelihood. So that growing data just becomes richer and richer. And one of the things that you know links into the changes in terms of tightening the strategies during lockdown has been being able to feed those uh, insights into the credit strategies but then also have that overlay at a macroeconomic level in terms of lead indicators like unemployment, furloughing, where, you know, we have, again, have a responsibility to take that forward look to think, how could our customer base's financial situation change over the coming months? I think, Alex, um, there's super interesting stuff about how you're using data to drive that and, and the analytics becomes like a, a job that's never done. Uh, and, and I guess uh, what I find interesting about that is how different that is to traditional lending, which sort of draws a line in the sand below a certain credit score and says we won't address that side of the market. And actually, it's really sort of learning from the experience and it's changing as the market's changing with it. And that's, that's an interesting place to be. And um, I, I've fortunately, we're pushed against time. And I, I want to do a whole show about that because I find that top just so so important and there's so much for our listeners and 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 uh, everyone to learn about how that actually works i think it's super important i also have to give you guys a shout out for the whole smooth dog thing like that whole brand piece was was absolutely phenomenal and i guess um 30 seconds on you know there has to be a brand element to you guys coming out and doing this and i guess you take the brand very seriously yeah, I mean, brand for us is key. We want a distinctive brand, but I think increasingly we feel that responsibility as a market leader to be educating um, the consumer base that you know we're working with. Um, just launched a new uh, communication initiative called Klarna Sense, which is built all around uh, making sure that our consumers really think about you know both their spending responsibly, but then also thinking about the payment options that they use. So yeah, we absolutely take that. You know, our brand is key. You know, it drives the the trust and the loyalty that we're seeking to build in the UK. Absolutely critical. And I think, again, the contrast with the previous story about the importance of, of, of educating people that Ross made, I think, uh, absolutely crucial. And, and in being genuine in their interest in building a brand for the long term. Fintech Insider listeners, we need you. We need you. We really need you to keep listening. But also, if you listen to the show, whether this is your first episode or your 447th episode, or you just dip in and dip out and you happen to be capturing this ad read and not skipping it, thank you for that. Uh, if you could take a few minutes to give us your feedback and suggestions to help us shape the future of the show, it would mean a lot to me and it would mean a massive amount to the Terry Wogan of fintech, Ross Gallagher himself. Um, we want to know what you like, what you don't, and where we can improve. Because we make this podcast for you our listeners and we want to make it better and frankly if we don't know what you like then we don't know how to make it better do we ross absolutely not no we're here for you uh so to help us out please take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey what's that url ross oh i don't have it <laughs> <laughs> it's me. actually bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey but you you could have been looking at the show notes that's how prepared the terry wogan of fintech oh, is wow um and for us listeners um we won't explain that reference uh, it shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete but it would mean a massive amount to us that's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey all right on with the show uh the next story comes from well just about every fintech outlet but it was uh we picked this up from monzo.com themselves monzo have relaunched monzo plus it's the second iteration of a premium account that will cost £5 a month and come with a range of perks, such as 
the ability to aggregate all of your accounts from different providers and move money between them within the Monzo app itself. A shiny, quite literally, multicolored new card. The ability to create your own spending categories and export transactions to a Google Sheet in real time so you can really dig into your spending. Virtual cards that enable you to make purchases online without handing over physical card details. 1% interest on money held in accounts and saving pots. And the ability to deposit cash in UK pay points uh, and withdraw up to £400 abroad fee free. Easy access to your credit score as well as many other things. This was received with mixed responses across the fintech community, some moaning about the cost versus the perks even, uh, others loving the aggregation of accounts all in one place, and some of the little details that Monzo put in there, like the the real-time export to Google Sheets. Monzo say they've listened to their customers, and since the first attempt that they did about a year ago, where they actually rolled back, and they've tried to make it much, much better. They're clearly aiming to be a one-stop money shop long-term, but Will these new additions be enough? Uh, Anna, did you see this story, and, and what did you think? I, I, I'm I'm not sure. Again, I seem to be not very sure about anything today. I, I I don't know how how well it was doing before, to be fair, and if it was being able to carry sort of the the business across. Um, I know they've not done great during the pandemic, and they had some big shifts. So I wonder. How much, you know, because because generally you do get obviously CEO and management changes, but so early on when, when you know, it felt like such a familiar brand and such a brand that was still like kind of founder led. I, I wonder how much it'll turn into a bit more mainstream and how they'll be, you know, I, I saw they got a lot of criticism online because their card was was not like standout anymore. And I always thought it was silly how this big race for like flashy cards, but I guess users cared about it. So I wonder if now they'll be following others rather than kind of leading the way. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see if, if they actually get more adoption, if people are willing to pay. I, I mean, I don't know if I would, frankly, if I would be willing to pay for these or if I just go to some, someone else and, you know, is, is it, is it worth it? Do, do, I mean, do I want to pay five pounds a month for my trans to get a trans unit credit score when I know in some other country, somebody will give it to me for free? Like you can see someone like Credit Karma coming in in the US, in the UK and offering a similar product, right? Like, Yeah, and, and there are products in the UK that, that let you do that for free. But Russ, do you think there's something else going on here? It seems like the fintech community, um, I mean, uh, Chad West from Revolut, for instance, pointed out that the cards look very similar. The features look very similar. Um, is, this, is this following rather than leading? Um, look, I guess with my delivery hat on, I have to really sort of commend the team over at Monzo because there's a lot here, right? And, you know, we all know how, how difficult it is to, to sort of build and launch products to market. I think probably going to Anna's point, you know, with my consumer hat on, uh, I really don't see enough value in the proposition to justify the five pounds um, monthly fee. I think you're exactly right. I mean, you can get your, 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 your credit score for free from ClearScore. I, I have a slight bugbear in the, you know, features like account aggregation and credit score. I think the people that most need those tools to better understand their uh, their finances and their financial position are also probably those who can least afford to pay £5 a month. And then when you start going down the the product features, you know, sort of line by line, very few of them are actually market leading. So, um, you know, you look at the 1% interest up to £2,000. Well, NSNI pays 1.16%, and there isn't a limit on that. You know, the fee free nationwide Flex Direct account offers 2% fixed for a year up to £1,500. And, and they're saying that, you know, all right, you can withdraw £400 while abroad, which is more than the £200 standard that exists today. But actually, Starling currently offers unlimited fee free withdrawals as part of its account. But how many Monzo customers are Monzo customers because of the price of the product, do you think? I mean, Alex, do you have some views on that? Do you think it is a price-sensitive consumer that they're playing to here or somebody else? Yeah, I, I think I agree with the previous comments that there's there's a, a structural challenge in the UK for you know for retail or you know, banking in terms of your bank accounts, in terms of willingness to pay. You know, we've you know, grown up not paying for your bank accounts. And I think when you, know, you compare that to now other countries like Australia, the US, et cetera, where there's, there's a different approach. I think it is harder for 
um, you know, a provider to try and justify why someone would want to pay. And I suppose you've got a couple of routes that you can try and go to do that. You can do as they've done and bring new features to market and try and sort of encourage existing users to, to jump across. Or, or you take the risky approach of kind of restricting features to the existing in the existing offering and making those, you know, chargeable. Um, you know, each has perils in terms of the risk of kind of upsetting your, um, you know, your existing you know, customer base and whether people will be willing to shift. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of plays to that that fundamental challenge for any fintech, which is you know having that clear route to kind of profitability and whether you've got a kind of a unit economic model that works. And you think bank accounts, so many of the the competition they're up against have that full product offering that they can reach out to to make money from saving products over here, from you know personal loans over there, credit cards to kind of offset the fact that they can they provide these services for free. It strikes me that Revolut have kind of made that work, though, right? They've got different tiers and they've got FX. Now, granted, they've gone into SME banking. Uh, Starling, too, has gone into SME banking. It's gone into lending. It's almost like they've they've done more banking stuff, to, as you say, Alex, I think, to, to start to cross-sell it. But also, they made it work. Something about Monza doing it seems, it seems to be set against their brand permission, maybe? Or is it just um, is it something else going on here, do you think? Yeah, it's almost as if we hold Monzo to a higher ideal, isn't it, than everybody else? Yeah, but this is why I say, was Monzo ever really about the features or was it about the experience? Because there's something in the details here that I think people are missing that that I think with the original Monzo, everybody thought it was the pink card, but actually, A, it was hot coral, and B, it was the details. It was the fact that they had real-time notifications, which doesn't seem like a killer app and a killer feature, but it, suddenly people started using this thing and were using it every day for their everyday spending. And then people realized later it was the real-time notification because of the confidence of oh that payment works and and how that makes a user feel i think there's something about just being able to choose the color of a virtual card and the way that's put together to real-time exports of your account data and all of the products that could lead to i think there is something really nice in the details that feels like old monzo here but yes it strikes me that uh, this is a stopgap to get to some revenue and to, ahead of being able to do other more complex banking products and that maybe the marketplace model isn't where the revenue would be long, medium to longer term for challenge banks i think i don't know i think if you look at it from far away and you see everything that's happening in the company if i want to be super cynical which i'm rarely right <laughs> I think it's, oh, wow, we had to slash our valuation the last time we raised. Let's get some revenue quick or our VCs will be very angry next time. And we we're, we need a lot of cash to work because we're a bank. So let's try to redo this and encourage more people to give us five pounds a month so that we show that we, we can make money. Um, but, you know, may, maybe I'm just too, again, too cynical. And maybe these things will really appeal. I just don't think that people will pay five pounds a month because they want to pick the type of virtual card. Like it seems kind of expensive o over the, the, the long run. Maybe if they made it like two, people would be like, oh, it's just two pounds now. But then five seems like quite a lot. I'd say that there's, um, there are two parts to it. Because I think the willingness for people to pay, I think you're right, is a, is a balance between the features. But I think it's as much the kind of loyalty and engagement that you have in the brand and kind of your support for for the you know the the company i think uh, like the analogy i use as a runner is like changes that strava made as a you know tracking for your runs and they went down a similar route of kind of moving features to being paid and actually the way they communicated that was very transparent to their customer base about why they were having to do this and they couldn't kind of sustain offering all these features that you've grown to love and the investment that they're putting in their resource to bring these features to market if they continue doing it on a completely free basis. And I think that drove a sense of loyalty and sort of willingness to pay. And I think that's something that's important. Ooh, I think you've really hit something there because Monzo did something really interesting when they changed their foreign uh, uh, transaction fees, uh, where they involved the community in it. And actually, Monzo Plus, the first time round, was launched. And I know they A-B tested it and they tested it on user segments and whatever, but it was launched. It was, it was given upon the community, but actually the Monzo community was a community of action. They, you built the product with them and it was very open and transparent. This is different to that. This is like, we've been doing this in the background and now here's the grand reveal, which is which is kind of not very Monzo. Um, that's that's an interesting insight, Alex. Um, Ross, last word before we move on. No, I, I just really, I really liked Alex's point and I thought the Strava comparison was a really interesting one. I guess to go back to my earlier point where I was saying that I don't think there's enough 
in Monzo Plus over and above what's part of the basic product. So I just wanted to throw back to you, Alex, and ask, well, if Strava had maintained just the a, a, a free option as well as the paid-for option with some of those new features, whether you might have stayed on the free one or, or actually upgraded and whether there was the value there. Yeah, I mean, they went, they did go down the route of actually, you know, stripping down the free option um, and it did upset some people. Um, but I think it, it drove a sense of value in the in the paid option. But also, I think it was as much the way they engaged and communicated to their you know, they, it's very much the talk is actually because you're now paying, we can invest even more resource to make the features even better. So you felt like actually my five pounds a month is going to mean, you know, it's going to get the features that I want. And I think that's something that maybe is missing in the in the Monzo Plus launch. Mm. Really good point, Alex. Thank you. All right, I've got to move us to the next story. This one comes from Finextra, and this is Goldman and MasterCard have invested in a company called Bond Tech. Uh, so uh, they've been joined in a more than $32 million Series A funding round for Bond, a U.S. startup connecting digital brands and banking partners. Bond is building a fintech platform designed to act as an engine for digital brands that want to provide access to capital to their customers and banking partners that want to grow the product um, by providing the underlying financial services. Um, the machine learning power platform does this by using APIs and SDKs and other three lesser acronyms to streamline integration between brands and um, banks. Uh, it, the creation of uh, three seasons industry executives with backgrounds including BlackRock, Goldman, uh, SAP, SoFi, and importantly, Twilio. Um, they say their platform will help the 22% of US households without bank accounts get access to financial services. I, I, Anna, I saw your face on that one. Do you want to come in on that last point? That's what everybody, that's what everybody says nowadays, right? It's like, oh, it, it, it just, everybody wants to give access to um, the unbanked um, and underbanked. And it's happening. I guess fintech is helping, but you know, there's still a massive, I just feel like sometimes they just tag it on to like their 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 branding just to seem more like consumer friendly and we're a financial inclusion company right you know before it was just cool to be fintech and now you to be a really cool like fintech you have to be a financial inclusion it's the whole um if you ever watch a tv show silicon valley it's like uh, we're here to change the yeah. world we're making yeah, the world yeah. a better it's place kind of, it's kind of that maybe in this case I, i'm not super familiar with them so maybe in this case they genuinely are doing that but you know i, I just when i hear it am i sort of eyes kind of glaze um over because you've heard it so many times yeah, yeah it's like when they say when a company or a bank says we want to help with financial wellness uh and we're launching an you know an ai assistant and i'm like why not lower your fees on overdrafts that would really help with financial wellness because you're making them kind of unwell so that that's my pet peeve <laughs> Or even get way better with data and analytics so that you can address risk that others can't. That would be the 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 sort of the 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 thing that maybe these guys can actually do because they're they're talking about using machine learning platforms and they're talking about all of that piece. Um, and of course, there's um, current. I don't know if you heard of them, a challenger bank in the U.S. that was built on a platform. I don't think they're built on Bond, but somebody similar. But they did really well during the pandemic. They are a financial inclusion built fintech because their cost of operating is a lot lot lower. They can afford to give products that are different price so there is something to it but i totally take your point Anna. i saw your face and i just had to had to come to you uh, ross this bank as a service space is really really hot apparently marketa are gonna ipo galileo's um launched their instant product which allows you to get moving with a, a card and an app in less than a week for a thousand dollars this is a super hot space at the moment Super hot, and, and and I'm not at all surprised. You know, I think plumbing is so important. It's beautiful. I mean, it's not glamorous. I think we can all just sort of say that up front. But that repeatability that they talk about, the scalability, you know, that's what removes the barriers to entry. That's what lets new entrants into the market. And it means that these new entrants, you know, they can focus their attentions on designing products and propositions that are more diversified, that solve real needs for customers rather than building out that plumbing, which is such a barrier to entry. And I guess going back to the financial inclusion point, you know, it means that then they can target those customers that the big traditional banks, I suppose, historically haven't been able to reach or, or haven't been able to service because the, the, the price point just isn't there. So it, it, it's an important space and, and one with huge impact. Alex, there's some serious talent on that leadership team, um, some some big name investors. Uh, do you think that there's space for another one? I mean, Synapse are backed by A16Z. There's there's a lot of people trying to be this this provider, this AWS uh, of banking type of player. 
Yeah, I mean, like putting a UK hat on it, I would say that, you know, we've got many of the traditional banks where, you know, they're crippled basically by the plumbing that, you know, Ross has just touched on in terms of being able to affect the, the, the consumer facing kind of tools or capabilities they want to have. You know, they're just basically limited by what's operating behind the scenes. I think also the kind of infrastructure on the plumbing side is so very often um, sort of underappreciated in terms of um, the reliance you have on it to execute the same task consistently kind of day in day out you know in terms of like uh, sort of the rigor behind it so I would say that you know having been in sort of banking like consumer banking in the UK for like nearly 15 years now um, you know you kind of dream of one of these things actually existing and be able to do actually do the things you want to do and often yeah. the real challenge is that you kind of go in there with your shopping list and um, before you know it, it really can't actually do all the things you want it to do. So I suppose proof's in the pudding. It, it absolutely is. I mean, we've got Rails Bank in the UK, Solaris, um, Wirecard have done sort of a version of this for some time, but it's quite different. Um, um, but of course, we'll cover Wirecard later. It's a little bit different. But you're really talking about those rails, you know, those transactional rails, that underlying infrastructure layer that's been there for a long time. And people built like Twilio did this for SMS. They built this really clean, beautiful API that completely changed who could use SMS and how they accessed it. If you could do that for the underlying banking rails, then that gets really, really exciting. But as we've seen with Wirecard, there's a trade-off there, which is, well, if that thing then goes down, you take everything everything with it. Um, I want to um, sort of get some views on, on the Goldman side of this. I don't know if anybody saw, but Goldman um, have form of investing in something, then acquiring it that's aligned to their strategy. So they invested in a company called Clarity Money, then they bought Clarity Money, then they released Marcus the PFM version of it, which uses Clarity Money as the underlying engine. Um, this bond tech the piece, especially given Goldman did the Apple Card partnership, is there a sort of de-risked Marcus Goldman play here, or am I just reading too many tea leaves at one time? What, what do you think, Alex Ross? Oh, so, um, I, I, I think it's really interesting. So I think you're exactly right in that they have form. Um, you know they're 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 powering the Apple Card, and, and and a lot of this I think is about reaching um, new customer segments, new markets like like retail that they haven't in the past. I think, as ever, what I think will be interesting to keep an eye on. I think Alex's point was a good one about the proofs in the pudding. I think you know ultimately how Goldman manages to sort of integrate Bond into the business, I think, will likely determine the success, and that's both from a an interoperability perspective, but then obviously in terms of the talent that we mentioned, the culture, the vision. Mm. If you could uh, really do Twilio, but for banking rails, you'd really have something like everybody talks about embedded finance and self-driving money. Like if you could do Stripe, but instead for the merchant side, but for the, for the issuing side, you'd really have something very, very interesting and, and very, very powerful. But um, Anna, I guess you're playing the role of our, our resident cynic on this stuff. Tell me uh, that there's got to be there's there's got to be another wire card or something story here in our near future and, and, and a catastrophe, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, I get, I, regulators in the U.S. are sort of starting to look more at this banking, like rent a bank charter thing, because that's essentially what you're doing in many cases. You're just renting a, a bank charter. And so that comes with some risks in general. That helps you, I guess, be grounded a bit if the bank is someone who's very, cares about their charter very much. But what if you start getting these new, new people that'll let you do whatever you want, um, but I, I, in this case, it's that it's a slightly different product. And I think what's interesting, again, is from Goldman's perspective is the, their push that they're doing in retail. I'm not sure if this is something where they that they'll want to work with um, or use. I don't know if they've said. Sometimes when they make announcements, I, when when they when I cover stories like these, I always try to ask the company if Goldman is a client or if they'll be using it. Normally, they sort of confess to it. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if they're a user, but but it's definitely interesting to see. You know, Goldman's general interest more into retail banking, right? Because before they, they've always made fintech investments, but it was more on the on the sort of capital market side. And, you know, we, we saw this week that they, they've said they, they've given more, they've talked more about their launching their checking account and, and what it's going to look like. And even there, I'm curious to see what whether it will look much different from what everybody else is offering. There's so many challenger banks and digital banks in the U.S. like elsewhere in the world. Um, will, will theirs look much better and be much more appealing and interesting to customers or will people just stick with what they have? Because, you know, they've done really well. They've gotten a lot of deposits. But if you compare them to JP Morgan, they, they have nothing. 
And I know they're not, they've said they're not going after, you know, the, the incumbents in, in the space. They're going after sort of the people in the middle, like the regional banks and the ones that can't compete with them on tech and, and, and resources. But still, you know, can they get more retail deposits just by launching a checking account, right? Yeah, you, you don't know. The, the whole Marcus piece uh, is going to be interesting to watch. But in the US at the moment is going through an absolute explosion of Challenger Bank launches. It's like a Cambrian explosion. Every day I'm coming across 10 new interesting Challenger Banks that are, that are being launched and super, super exciting because of this sort of stuff. Um, but also the partner banks in the US, the, the people that are renting the charter, tend to be very small. It's Sutton Bank. It's Evolve Bank and Trust. It's people with less than 10 billion in assets. And if you're not familiar with it, this is where we get really fintech insider. Um, there's a, a legislation in the US that you're probably very familiar with, Anna, called um, Dodd-Frank. Under Dodd-Frank, there's something called the Durban Amendment, which capped interchange for most uh, lenders, interchange being the fee that the merchant pays every time you walk into a store and use your card except for banks that have less than 10 billion in assets. Their interchange was not capped. So that means they had a lot more interchange to go around. They can partner with a Bond or a Synapse or a, a Galileo and still have a lot of interchange left over and also give some of that to the Chimes, the Varos, and so on. So you can actually make revenue in the US out of interchange alone in a way that the Europeans, the Monzos, wouldn't be able to do. So uh, fundamentally different dynamics in those markets. Anywho, got to move us to the next story. This is about the UK government kicking off a fintech review. Um, I got to move us to the next story. Uh, this is the UK government kicking off a fintech review. And to hear more about this, we spoke to the Economic Secretary for the Treasury, John Glenn, outside his offices in Westminster. So let's hear from him now. So I just want to tell you about the fintech strategic review, uh, which we've launched this week. I'm delighted that Ron Khalifa, former chairman of WorldPay, has taken the lead with this vital piece of work that is looking at our world-leading fintech industry in the UK. It adds £7 billion to the UK economy, employs 60,000 people, and last year we saw records amount of investment in fintech. So Ron's review will be looking over five tracks over the next six months, what we can do to ensure that we get the best talent, the best investment, that we come up with the right international focus and have the right policy interventions to see that fintech continues to grow in what is a fascinating set of opportunities as we look to the global marketplace in the years ahead. So I'm grateful to Ron for this review. But fintech is right at the core of my work as Economic Secretary to the Treasury. And I eagerly look forward to his recommendations as we look to the budget next year to implement some of the changes I'm sure he'll suggest. Interesting one. Fintech, very clearly important to the UK economy. Alex, coming to you first, I mean, uh, working with Ron, who's um, you know kind of had a lot of experience, um, what do you think the value in a report like this would be? And what do you think UK fintech really needs from this report? Yeah, so I see this as being an opportunity to support fintechs. You know, we've seen really in the UK, we've seen really good growth uh, in fintechs over the last 10 years. I think one of the challenges that we could we face is is competition around the world. There are other, you know, uh, countries and cities, you know, trying to drive this forward. You know, Sweden for us, Stockholm, it would be for Klarna would be a great example of that. But, you know, you've got, you know, the Netherlands, Canada, you know, Singapore, um, pushing um, for the same talent that we have, you know, the uh, the capital that we have. So I think, you know, the key thing for me is that I don't think we should be complacent that we're getting everything right in this area and actually you know, focus on this as long as we're talking to the right stakeholders you know, across the UK, I think is, you know, a really positive step. Indeed. And fintech's created a lot of jobs for us. It's uh, it's it's sort of uh, made a real difference to the consumer experience, if nothing else. It may not have changed the pricing model that much. And I think often that is an argument thrown at fintech. But, um, you know, pick apart what this means for you. Well, um, so, so you mentioned, Simon, um, employs 60,000 people nationwide. It's worth around $7 billion to the um, to the UK economy. This feels like, and I, I think this was Alex's point as well, it, it feels like almost what the government's trying to do is safeguard what is an increasingly important part of, of the UK economy. I think when you look at, when you break down the, the various work streams, so skills and talent, investment, national connectivity, policy, as, as, as we heard in the, um, the voiceover, and, and, and international attractiveness, I think um, this is really about ensuring that we have the infrastructure in place 
to support the continued growth of, of the sector. Um, to throw a, a negative slant on this a little bit, it feels to me like the government's a little bit behind the curve here. Indeed, that's always a risk, isn't it? I mean, um, post-Brexit, post-COVID, uh, it's good to have something like this happening, Anna, but do you think this report's going to help? And do you think fintech sort of happened as a result of government intervention or uh, was going to happen anyway in the UK? Well, I think the UK had the massive advantage that the government really cared about the fintech sector from the very beginning. And I noticed the stark difference when I moved to the US. Nobody was you didn't have all these giant fintech champions in, in the government. That's because they had tech in general. They didn't need fintech. Uh, so I think it did definitely happen and, and bring attention and it became kind of a big sector in itself. I, I just find it weird that they're doing a study on it review now. Like it, it kind of feels like it's a well-known sector. So I, I don't know. I guess they're trying to figure out how they can help it after the pandemic. Um, so, or I don't know, again, I'm going to be cynical. Is it just like some distraction from all the other issues and they're just trying to, let's go back to fintech because it sounds cool and it sounds exciting. And let's not think about other issues that our economy might face, right? Fintech makes it sound young and fresh and cool. I would say that if you're looking for a growth sector, fintech is is really a promising area of growth. And if you can help that sector out, it would make sense for some central organizing force to be paying attention to that. Hopefully, this is effective because it it employs a lot of people, creates a lot of jobs, but can make a real difference to customers. And even the most cynical person um, would have to admit that uh, the, if nothing else, the challenge banks have changed the customer's expectation of a digital experience. And there's an opportunity to really change the economics of the underlying infrastructure. If we can change how we access the rails, to your point, Alex, earlier, that I think was really good, with some of these bankers and service providers, that's where things could get really, really interesting. So the next 10 years of fintech could be could be more interesting than the last 10. So here's hoping they find some stumpf. Um, here's hoping that, uh, that they can move it forward. I, I am very conscious of the time. And we are going to move on as we're getting towards the end of the show. So we're going to round up some of the stories we didn't have time to cover. And my goodness, there seems to be more and more happening in fintech every single week. And we couldn't give it all attention. Um, But these stories deserved a shout out. So, Ross, do you want to start out with uh, the first one here? Yeah, absolutely. And we did say at the top side that there were lots of good stories. Um, So I don't think we've disappointed. Um, So this story comes from Biz Women and concerns First Women's Bank getting its conditional approval from the FDIC. So a women-led commercial bank to be based in Chicago has now received conditional approval from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. In addition to traditional banking services, First Women's Bank will offer a platform designed to connect small businesses with capsule solutions provide individuals and corporations with opportunities to promote gender equality and focus on building a community that fosters strategic partnerships and inclusion. Um, The CEO, Marianne Markovic, said, this is a significant milestone on the path to launching First Women's Bank, the only bank in the country with a strategic focus on the women's economy, and the FDIC's approval of our application positions us for success. Uh, so I think this is a pretty important step. I mean, not only in terms of the potential impact for furthering the women's economy and, and, and also the awareness that this raises of the issues uh, and challenges that are faced by women in particular operating in this space, but I think also that the FDIC recognizes this potential and is also open to working with the First Women's Bank to help realize it. And it's interesting, conditional approval from the FDIC, getting that sort of thing was always seen as very, very hard in the US. So the fact that um, not only have they done something really important, they've done something very, very difficult. So so, so credit to them on that side as well. Uh, so next story, uh, Lloyds Bank have taken a stake in Form 3. So they've taken a minority equity stake in cloud-native payments technology house Form 3 as a part of their an overhaul of their legacy payments architecture. Partnership with Form 3 will aim to simplify Lloyds payments capabilities, providing support for enhanced data and new overlay services for creating the basis for the bank's response to the UK's new payment architecture initiative. Supporting the deal, Lloyds is also acquiring a minority stake in Form 3 as part of its next investment round, which is due to complete in August. The equity investment follows a similar deal struck with Barclays, um, which joined just two funding rounds in Form 3 back in 2018. 
very, very interesting things to come with this one. I don't think we've heard the last of that funding round at all. I think we'll hear more players come out. Form 3 um, has got a lot of specialists in the management. The guy who used to run payments for Barclays, um, some of the former payments, Barclays team are there, uh, guys from Swift. Um, some really, really interesting folks. And I, I believe that they're sort of really competing with ClearBank to be one of the major push payments providers. So everything in that push payment provider space could be... Um, is going to be really ultra hot in Europe in the next sort of um, two years, I think. Anybody who can create that um, push payment experience and really bring down the cost for merchants and, and manage that space is going to make a big, big difference. All right, Ross, next story. Great. So our next story comes from Finextra and concerns Zinja introducing in-app share trading in US stocks. So the Australian challenger bank Zinja to launch a share trading account for customers to invest in US stocks. It's called Dabble. The new account will give Australian investors access to more than 3,000 US shares and exchange-traded funds via the Zinja app. Zinja is charging a flat monthly subscription fee of $8 for unlimited trading on top of a competitive 1% FX fee per trade, and there are no brokerage fees. This is in sharp contrast to traditional services for trading in US stocks by Aussie banks, where brokerage can be as high as $19.50 per trade with significant FX fees on top. Dabble also offers fractional share trading in top performing stocks, enabling users to buy a portion of a share, investing as little as $1 in a company. So this, I think, is, of course, topical given the earlier story about Robinhood. I guess, sorry, we probably touched on this earlier, but the argument could be made that one of, of Robinhood's major impacts has been that lots of providers are now making these types of services available themselves. Subscription fee-free trading seems to be everything. I, I wonder how long it is till we see a big bank do this, um, because realistically, it seems like every fintech is looking at it. And given the loan losses that a lot of organizations are looking at, where in your balance sheet are you going to be driving value in the near future? And how do you step into this space in a way that preserves your brand? I think to to the sensible points that um, Alex made earlier, that's going to be so crucial, especially when customers are facing hardship. So going to be interesting to see. Uh, but it's time for our and finally story this week. And we we couldn't finish this show without covering your weekly wire card roundup. My goodness. So this story this week, uh, if you've not been following it, is missing wire card exec um, Marcelek is under the protection of the GRU in Moscow. German newspapers are reporting that the missing Wirecard COO is being sheltered by Russian secret agents in the military-controlled GRU. Mazalek, who has been missing since dismissal from Wirecard, is implicated in a number of fraudulent overseas deals. Shortly after his removal from the firm last month, he was reported to have passed through the Philippines before boarding a flight to China, um, but the lead was bogus based on immigration records. The German press now claims he's actually under the watch of GRU in the property of West Moscow, having had, uh, boarded a flight to Belarus. This information fits with previous reports that he'd been touted after secret documents about uh, use of a Russian chemical weapon in the UK, as he bragged ties to intelligence services to uh, ingratiate himself with London traders. My goodness, this guy sounds interesting. This story seems to have no end. Every week there's a new tweet. He's also said to have sent large amounts of Bitcoin uh, to Russia from Dubai. I mean, what's your favorite thing about this story, Alex, so far? Is it? <laughs> I'm slightly uh, sort of dumbfounded by it, if I'm honest. Uh, like just struggling to, uh, it reads like something from like a fiction novel in, in, in all honesty. It's, it's, it's hard to consider it in, in, in a sort of context of reality, isn't it? Like, from from what from the the read that you just did, Sai, you know the the most natural response is to ask, well, well, when's that movie out? That trailer sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> I've I've already heard that the Netflix documentary has in fact started, and yeah. people are people are working on it as we speak. So not surprised one bit. It'll be a doozy when it comes out. This thing. Look, it's an incredible story. I mean, even even just taking the whole Jan Marsalek Russia link out of this it's an incredible story um you know you've got marcus brown now the the ceo he's now had his bail revoked and he's been rearrested and um accused by munich prosecutors of a multi-year fraud they're, they're saying now that this began in in 2015 and they've extended the um the investigation to include lots of former um executives as, as, as well as the ones that they were already looking at but the jan marsalek i mean element that's what adds the sort of hollywood 
bit on top. I mean, he was dismissed when the, the 1.9 billion euro black hole was discovered. So he's since been missing, considered to be on the run. You mentioned the bogus immigration records. I mean, that's just incredible in and of itself. But then this is where all the sort of growing mountain of evidence that comes that he was sort of like operating as a essentially a spy for the, the Russian state. You know, reports he touted secret government documents with, with traders in the UK. Further reports that he tried to build a Libyan militia uh, on behalf of the Russian state. And now it appears that he is in Moscow under the protection of the GRU. I mean, what more could you want from a TV drama? Anna, what more could you want? Well, there's Bitcoin also, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's always some Bitcoin there. It's a, it, it, it's interesting. You just decided to send large amounts of Bitcoin, which is the perfect like level of you know Bitcoin understanding that you need for a, a Netflix uh, TV or for just a generally a TV show or a documentary is you know sending money away, right? I remember when the boom was happening that everybody was using Bitcoin on billions and other shows. So it's a perfect conclusion. It really, really is. Well, I mean, let's hope that Wirecard UK um, and all of the fintechs they serve don't end up with damaged perceptions of fintech because, you know, there's the former um, Newcastle Building Society who are people in the UK who were acquired by a German company, Wirecard AG, who, you know, had to fight over a weekend to help a lot of fintechs keep service running. And this does have a lot of consequences on people down the line. So let's let's not lose sight of that. And I really hope it doesn't damage perceptions of fintech. Um, but I mean, I don't know what else to say. I think we've got to leave it there. Uh, it, how do you follow that story? I don't think you can. Uh, so that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so, so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Anna? Uh, you can see my stories on Reuters.com and I'm on Twitter at Anirerat. How about you, Alex? You can find me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And Ross? Yeah, likewise. I mean, find me on LinkedIn or at RossGallagher07 on Twitter. Find me on Twitter at SYTaylor or find me on LinkedIn, Simon Taylor. Thank you for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. And do, of course, head to that link at bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey to help us make the show better. Of course, uh, we will be back next week. If you have any suggestions or feedback, use bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey and pass along the pod. Share, like, subscribe. You know what to do, people. Get involved. Thank you very much. Goodbye for now.